Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation, so sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. everybody. Welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. We are the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. And I know I say this every week when I talk to someone, but today I am really super serious when I say that I am thrilled, honored, delighted, and all those great adjectives to say that we are talking today with Carolyn Norman, who is Diary of a Sewing Fanatic on Instagram. She is such a major player, in my opinion, in sewing and home sewing. She makes such beautiful, exquisite work. She's such a powerful voice in the sewing community. And I have long admired her work. And I am very glad that she agreed to speak with us today on the Stitch Please podcast. So welcome, Carolyn. Thank you for being here. No problem. It's nice to be here and talk with you. So let's talk, let's take, let's start at the beginning or as far back as you are willing to go. When did you start sewing? And um, I recently learned that you did some work in design school and you have a lot of this different background. So tell us about like some of your early sewing experiences. I think everyone knows the story that I started sewing at 11. Um, I am, I was and still am a Barbie fanatic and when my grandparents would give us um, allowance, I would go to Woolworths. Does anybody remember Woolworths? Yes. <laughs> and I would buy clothes for my Barbie doll. And my grandmother got annoyed because she thought that it was a waste of money. And so she took me over to the pattern counter at Woolworths and uh, got me a pattern. When we got home, she took an old dress of hers that she was no longer wearing out of her recycle bin because everyone recycled everything back then. And she showed me a few hand stitches and how to lay the pattern pieces out. And I spent the, the rest of the summer making clothes for my Barbie doll off of that one dress. And I think another dress she finally contributed to the cause since she saw we were so into it. It was me and my cousin. But what really hooked me was when I got home and went outside to play and all the little kids could see all of the clothes my Barbie had, and I realized that I had something that a whole lot of other people didn't have, and I really enjoyed the journey of making that summer. So from there, it just progressed. I mean, I went to every class I could after school back when they still taught sewing in school. I think there was a club when I was in elementary school, and I went to the club. I took a few lessons at the Singer store. There used to be loads of singer stores where you could go and not only buy a sewing machine, but also take classes. I took every home economics sewing class I could in junior high school and high school. When I got uh, ready to go to college, I decided I wanted to major in fashion merchandising. So I majored in fashion merchandising. I worked in the garment district for years, different uh, fam- um fashion companies and um, even a button company. So 
I have a pretty long, thorough background. Deep. I was thinking that's a really good <laughs> background. And you haven't gotten sick of it yet. That's the thing. And you started oh, at 11 and you have, you are still doing it. Can you tell me a bit about what it means to work at a button company? I can't imagine like what that involves. Or maybe before we get to that, let's just go over some basic definitions. What is fashion merchandising and how is that different from fashion design? Okay. So when I graduated from high school, you could... It, you could be a couple of things, a textile artist, a fashion designer, a fashion merchandiser was the person who was in the stores and set the, the displays up or a fashion buyer. I originally went to school as fashion merchandising because I wanted to be a buyer because when I graduated high school in 1977, a lot of the fashion industry was still located in New York City. So yeah. When you went to the garment district, you saw those rolling racks and all of the different houses were there. Uh, once I was um, in college and I had work-study programs, I worked at a few stores. I remember seeing the designers walking down the street. I could see Liz Claiborne two, no three times a kidding. week. No yeah, kidding. And she was really kind and really nice. Wow. You know, if you stopped and asked her a question, she'd answer you. But that people actually were in the district. By the time I was in my 30s, the district was totally different. People were moving offshore or to New Jersey. So there, you didn't see the designers anymore. The, the rolling racks were starting to disappear from the streets. And um, there were just not a lot of fashion going on in the district. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I need and, another question. <laughs> no, no. And so I guess one of my questions would be um, about the working in the button shop. I just, I keep thinking about like, I know I love like going to New York and going to places like, I think for me, because I didn't discover it until after it was in its prime, which is what you're describing. Um, I have met some really fun people just being in like Spandex House. I met a Muppeteer from mm -hmm. the Jim Henson workshop who mm -hmm. I guess their studio is in um, in New Jersey. And I was like, oh my gosh, I met someone and he was buying something to make Bert an outfit, you know, like those kind of things, which, I, which made me very excited. Um, but you're right. I think that, you know, globalization has changed a lot, you know, with things and people moving offshore. Um, I would love for you to tell me a bit about what it meant to work in a button shop like or button business, like what does that mean? Since, you know, there's so many elements of sewing and fashion that we don't think about. That, But that's somebody's job to figure out how many cards go on a button. That's someone's job to do all those things. And so tell me what that was like. Okay, so when I worked in the for the button company, halfway through my career in the industry, I changed. I wasn't trying to be in merchandising. I actually became an executive, uh, executive assistant, exactly what I'm doing now. And mm -hmm. the reason I got hired at the button company was because I knew that buttons came in sizes. He had hired, he had interviewed all of these people and they didn't realize button came, buttons came in sizes wow. and I could name the sizes both in inches and like 32, 24. And I understood what the L meant. And he was just like, okay, you're hired. I literally didn't get out the door. He hired me. Wow. And as I started working there, it was a firm. We had, I worked in the showroom in New York. They had a factory in Virginia. And then 
the majority of our buttons were made in China and Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So my boss went out to different firms to get them to put buttons on their garments. And the biggest get was all at that time was Walmart, but Walmart didn't want to pay more than half a cent, quarter of a cent for a button. Can wow. you imagine a half a yes. cent for a button? I can imagine Walmart doing just that. That's how they roll. That's how, <laughs> no, seriously, they bankrupt small companies. They yeah. bankrupt, they do, that's what they do. They have yeah. not great, they have terrible policies. So I'm terrible not surprised. Policies. So the thing was to get buttons on um, different designer or lines shirts. And to do that, we had to develop button cards uh, to show what our line was, how many colors we could do it in, uh, what types we had. And the first year I worked there, my boss was playing with these fiddly old ugly cards. And I looked at him and I said, I think I could design you something better. So I ended up designing the button card line for about two years before Ooh. we left. And in that capacity, I got to go to, at that time, there were still button dyers in New York City. Oh my goodness. There were whole floors of guys who dyed buttons. They dyed synthetic, they dyed natural, they dyed the shells, they dyed everything. It was the most amazing place to go and still one of the best things I experienced working in the garment district was getting to go dye buttons because not only would I take the buttons for the firm to dye, but if I had a dress, I was making, I talked nice to the guy and yeah, hey. he would dye it to my well, like, salon. Can you slide a little bit of that dye around the side? Yes. <laughs> and he would dye it to my swatch. And that's where I learned that we think six or 10 buttons are a lot of buttons. i we dealt in grosses, which is 144 44. buttons. Goodness gracious. At one point, you wanted to be my friend because we had moved from one office to another and I'd cleaned out the buttons that were like everywhere. And I took home all the ones I liked. And anybody I knew that sewed got buttons because they were free because they were going to throw them in the garbage. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for rescuing those amazing buttons. <laughs> I still have a few left in my collection now. Actually. That's amazing. Yes. Let me ask you about um, your recent comment about like offshore has made me think about what is your thought on fast fashion since you've done this work in the past, since you used to be in fashion merchandising and are aware of the trends and this is one of the changes. What do you think about fast fashion? And do you think fast fashion has showed up in any way in the sewing community? Or do you see sewing as an alternative to fast fashion? Fast fashion is um, a new term. We didn't really call it fast, fast fashion when I was in the industry. People have started to go offshore. It was called offshore. Mm -hmm. And my thought now is always, God help us if we have an oil shortage or whatever, because you'll never get the goods out of China or wherever we're having them made, we would have to go back to the way we used to do things mm. because we're, we wouldn't be able to get things. Um, fast, fast fashion. I guess it goes along with everything else that we do now. Everything is fast. Hmm. You want something from Amazon? You can choose today. You can choose tomorrow. You can choose your Amazon day, which is only three days later. Everything is fast. 
you send a message, you send a text, someone responds to you in 20 seconds. And if they don't respond in 20 seconds, you think they're dead off in a ditch somewhere. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Everything is fast now. Everything. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't fashion be made quickly and the turn be quick? And then it's giants that are handling our fashion or how we obtain clothing, people like Walmart, Target, H&M, Forever 21. Mm-hmm. So, and their goal is to turn it as quickly as possible. Their goal is not to have it sit there for the entire season. The way it used to work was garments would come in, you'd have a sale at Labor Day. Let's say for the fall season, you'd have a sale at Labor Day, but that was all the summer stuff you were getting rid of. Your first major sale would be in October for Columbus Day, and then you only mark down like 20%. Then you have another sale you know, around Thanksgiving, Black Friday, where things got marked down to 50% or 35%. But all of these markdowns were incorporated into the price on the floor. So it sat for so many weeks at a regular price, and you made so much money off of it that way. And then it sat for the sale at the 25% for so many weeks, and you knew. So you controlled the pricing as it went through. And that I don't think that model exists anymore. I think it's put on the floor for six ninety nine and sell it out, and then put something else on the floor for six ninety nine and sell it out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the way I was taught how to merchandise when I was in college. That's right. Let me ask you if you thought about this when you're saying that everybody wants everything fast. I want to transition to talk about some of the changes that you've seen in your time as a blogger, as a writer, as a teacher, um, working in the sewing community. Do you feel like there's a certain sense of either urgency behind sewing in terms of if, if, if I'm, I'm trying to figure out, are there some principles of fast fashion that show up in the sewing world? Is there a push? You know, I, I just recently saw a hashtag that said slow sewing. Um, which made me think about what it meant to sew more slowly instead of like trying to mass produce a bunch of stuff all at once. Um, I don't know. What do you think? I think that comes that when you first start to sew, you are so thrilled that you can make a garment that fits you, that you're just producing as fast as you can. And then you get to a place where you have 30 t-shirts and 10 pairs of jeans (laughs) and 14 dresses and you realize you don't need it quite as quickly. Let me slow it down. That's my interpretation of it. But I'm of the older generation. And so someone younger who's more into sustainable sewing or slow, slow sewing or all of the terms that they use might have a totally different take. In my generation, you had a closet full of clothes. You had as many clothes as you could get in there. Sometimes you built a second closet, put some more clothes in. It was a it was a sign of wealth. But I'm a boomer, and mm-hmm. um, we had a different set of values than the next generation coming behind us. And our values were based upon our parents, who were depression babies, mm-hmm. and they had nothing. And so right. to, to gain as much stuff as you could gain was like a real thing. Mm, that's right. That's right. So, that's right. and that trickled down to their children who bought all the stuff, had all big houses, the, even bigger cars, bigger vacations, everything big we could do. We did it because we were born from depression parents. 
depression mm-hmm. aged parent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this new generation is going smaller. And I guess if you've had things and you could have things, of course you're going smaller. Mm-hmm. But I can't speak to that. I honestly can't. Because yeah. when people say to me they recycle, I think, hey, I started off recycling. That's right. My first sewing was sustainable. Back right. when I went to Woolworths and got that and, and stopped buying Barbie clothes and just started using a, a dress, you know, a, mm-hmm. an old dress and turning it into clothes. That's amazing. I always, I also like to, I like to sew for my Barbies, but I imagine people like you who sew for your Barbies. I don't know if you know Benita Hinton. She's, um, she's also, she's in New Jersey. She does embroidery. She sewed leather goods for her Nubian, Barbies. Nubian, yeah. Is she Nubian Stitch or Nubian Stitch? Yeah, Nubian Sister. Nubian Sister. Nubian sister. Yeah. Nubian she Sister. amazing embroidery. I know, but she said she's, she's hurt. And I was like, how did you get started with leather? She was like, that's the first thing I ever sewed with. And I was like, I imagine that my dolls looked like, you know, they were extras on the set of The Walking Dead, the way I was dressing them. And if you sewed your Barbie clothes, you know, out all summer and for your friends, and she sewed her Barbie clothes out of leather, I was like, I'm not going to show you all any images of what my Barbie clothes look like. So I'm pretty sure it was like, you know, tied with, you know, my mother would let me use a sewing machine and it was tied with like a shoestring or something around the waist. It was a mess. No, um, my Barbies had sequin ball gowns and... Oh my gosh. I remember she had a satin jumpsuit with a sequin duster over it. Girl, nice. Yes. Wow. I My grandmother gave me an old church dress. And so you had the materials to make mm-hmm. these things. Did you make stuff for your friends when your friends and neighbors saw that you could do this? Were they like trying to barter with you to get stuff for their dolls? That's what I would have done. Not at 11. No. Not at 11. <laughs> yeah. No. I was all about me at 11. Well, I know. I was the same, but I couldn't sew well. So I had to be about <laughs> trying to figure out how to get you to make something for me. Nope. Um <laughs> You're listening to the Stitch Please podcast, and I'm talking today with Carolyn Norman, Diary of a Sewing Fanatic. Stay tuned to hear more from Carolyn after the break. Here at Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, we talk a lot about sewing. But if you want to see and not just hear about some of the things we've been discussing, feel free to join us on the socials. You can find us at Stitch Please on Facebook, and you can also find us on Instagram at Black Women Stitch. You can find photos of projects that we've been working on, really interesting social commentary, and on Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you can join Black Women Stitch for a live Instagram chat. Again, that's every Thursday at 3 p.m. So find us on the socials, follow up with us. We are happy to hear your direct messages. You can reach out to us at the Black Women Stitch page on Instagram, and we'll help you get your stitch together. You're listening to the Stitch Please podcast, and my guest today is Carolyn Norman of Diary of a Sewing Fanatic. I asked Carolyn about some of the changes she's seen in the industry, and she revealed a really great tidbit about why patterns are so expensive these days. Listen up. Let's talk about um, some of the other changes that you've seen in your time. And I'm wondering if you wanted to talk a bit about um, some of your writing um, and what you've seen, what changes you've seen or growth you've seen in the field of sewing blogging 
as a, as a, I don't know if you would call it a field or a practice or a discipline or a hobby, um, but what changes you've seen over time there, as well as just in general with how sewing has exploded, or do you think it has? Okay, so you have to remember that I learned to sew 1968, 1969. Mm-hmm. So sewing was taught in every high school. Sewing was taught in every junior high school. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned something before earlier when we were talking about the price of patterns. A pattern costs yeah. 50 cents. A pattern costs a dollar. It costs so little because, one, prices were lower, but also because so many people did it. There was oh. a sewing machine in every home. I don't remember going into a home as a small child that there wasn't a sewing machine. It doesn't mean that the person actually sewed a lot, but everyone had one. Everyone mm-hmm. had one. Yes, it was yes. as like a microwave now. Yes, yes. So the cost for a pattern was low because there was a, a, in my opinion, there was a larger demand for them. Over time, as women started to go to work, mm-hmm. uh, the pattern companies changed to this thing called fast, faster, fastest to get. And they started to produce these patterns so that you could make a skirt in a night. Or you can make a shirt in a, in, a, in a Saturday afternoon because, you know, you worked all day now and you worked five days a week. So you didn't have that time to devote to leisurely sitting around in your sewing room and making these beautiful outfits to wear to church or out to the parties or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we went to the fast, faster, fastest. Then around the 80s. I think we just sewed, but the you could see that the sewing pool was shrinking, especially since they stopped teaching uh, home ec and sewing in schools. My oldest daughter did not have home ec. Uh, she will be almost 40, and okay. she did not have home ec in school. Hmm. Mm-hmm. She did not learn to sew, and the first thing out of her mouth was baby fat. She wanted some baby fat oh, jeans. She so. wanted the stuff that you could buy in the store. Yes. Right. So the sewing kind of contracted and then it became like a niche kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I told this story on another podcast where I, I've always sewn. I've sewn since I, I took my machine to college. I sewed when I worked in the garment district. I sewed. Yeah. I sewed through all of it. And I was working at a firm and I didn't get a raise. And the woman said to me, I didn't need a raise. They gave <gasps> raises to people who needed raises. And I was like, what are what? you talking about? Wait, wait. She goes, I go, what are you talking about? She goes, well, you always have such brand new, such nice brand new clothes on that we just figured you didn't need a raise. I looked at her and I went, I made those clothes. And she was like, what? People don't sew anymore. Yes, they do. Wow. And I learned from that for like every subsequent job, when people would start saying things about my clothing, I'd go, well, I made it. I made it. (laughs) I made it. Give me a raise. (laughs) Right. Make sure that I don't get, I don't lose a raise over that ever again. Exactly. It's like, I do a great job here at this job and then I go home and make clothes. So there we go. So I, I need, I need the money. 
I need mm-hmm. to be able to buy more fabric. Exactly. Absolutely. I was wondering if you could think um, a bit about, I know you talked about, I, I love this theory that you offered about as sewing contracted or got smaller in the 1980s or so around that time, that pattern prices started to increase. What do you imagine the state or how would you describe the state of the sewing landscape today? Do you can, do you still think that it's shrinking? Because what you just described really helped me because I couldn't figure out how or why the price of patterns didn't keep up with inflation. Because, you know, when you look at the differences in inflation between 1970, for example, which was the year that I was born, 1970 and today. Oh my God, you were born in 1970? I know, right? Isn't that? <laughs> That's crazy. Okay. I know. Isn't that bananas? But you know what? You know, the funny part is my son and I were talking, I dropped him off at college and he said, mom, this, our new show is coming out. We're going to watch our episode. I said, okay, cool. When is it coming out? He says, oh, I don't know. Sometime in 2020, they said, and I was like, we have to wait 20 years to watch that show. And he was like, mom, mom, what, what year do you? What year do you think it is? And I was like, it's like 2000, right? And he's like, mom, it is 2020 right now. That is the year. Because it sounds like a fake year. Like, I cannot believe it is actually 2020. I keep writing it down on checks and stuff. And I'm like, this can't be right. Um, Yeah. So I went to kindergarten in 1965. I, I remember JFK being assassinated. Wow. I mean... I remember Martin Luther King being assassinated. Wow. I remember learning Martin Luther King. We had a hymn about Martin Luther King that we sang in my elementary school um, because it was right around the time he must have gotten his holiday or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know why we were thinking about that, but we were definitely thinking about that. But I don't remember those things. I don't have those memories, but I have like you know, other ones that are not nearly as, you know, historically significant. The turbulent, the turbulent sixties, the disco seventies. I remember all of it. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. The Jackson five on TV. You know, I wanted to be Mrs. Michael Jackson. And Penny on Penny on good times when Penny came on good times. I yep. watched Penny on Good Times and when she was on different strokes, let's not forget yes. she was also on different oh my strokes. Gosh. Have you ever gone back to watch any of those shows like on Nick at Night or whatever? Or now Nick at Night is like the doggone Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. That's allegedly like old school television. And I'm like, it's from the 90s. And they're like, yeah, it's old. And I'm like, shut up. I'm going to stab you in the eye with this fountain pen. Like, wow. Then you can imagine how I feel. I'm Exactly. Yeah. I was raising children who watched the Fresh Prince. I think you can. I have a. Um, I have cable. Because I live with my mother and Mm -hmm. cable is easiest for her. And I have cable and there are a lot of cable shows and there's some like Aspire or TV One that play things like Good Times and play and play different strokes, play a different world. But I watch a different world off Amazon Prime, actually. Oh, yeah. So there are they are back on television because there's now so many TV channels that they need to fill it with something. With so something. they're filling, mm-hmm. so they're right filling it with that. older older shows. 
<laughs> I remember when I was a kid, old school shows were like watching Andy Griffith, which I do still watch sometimes. Okay, I watched that in real time. Wow. And my, my, me and my mom still talk about it. It's so funny. Okay, so let's transition to talking about, um, thank you so much for that insight about the patterns. I wanted to talk about your thoughts or opinions on PDF patterns on precise sewing. Like I, I really want to get into your angel shirt and I want to get into what you consider the, the essential sewing skills are and how those are being preserved and promoted or how you think they're being maybe lost. Um, okay. Can we start at the back and work up the PDF pattern? Yes, let's do. Let's do. So what are some of the essential skills? Because I know that you have that, um, you, that column in sewing magazine with giving people different advice. I don't mean to like sound like a snob, but I, I was watching, I was, I was somewhere. I don't know if I was on Instagram or on Facebook and someone like had no idea what a, maybe like a Taylor's ham was like, they'd never heard of it. They didn't know what it was or what it was for. And I'm like, wow, am I really a snob? Because like, I don't know. I don't know if it's because I've been sewing. I mean, I've not been sewing as long as you. I've been sewing about 25 years. But like when I started, you know, we got, we all got the tools. You know, you got your, your curve, you got the, um, you got your hams, your seam roll, your, and I also, I'm a notions junkie. I freaking love notions. I have like (laughs) every, that it, it, there's, there's never one way to do something. I can always find five tools to do the same thing. And then I find my favorite one. Um, mm-hmm. But you know what I'm saying? Or like, or someone who'd like never heard of interfacing and didn't know what that was. And so I'm, I but, don't know if I'm just, I'm just being like, because I love learning and like, I love going to classes and I love those kind of things and I don't want to wing it. So I don't know. What do you think? I don't get annoyed at people who ask those questions because I remember we were all all beginners at one time. Yes. I get annoyed when the question is asked, when examples are presented to you, and then instead of doing the work, like Googling it, you come back <laughs> and ask another question. That annoys me because information is so accessible right now. You don't really need to follow up with a question when someone sets you on the path. You should show a little initiative and go out and mm-hmm. learn a little more, I think. Mm-hmm. But I don't get annoyed when people ask what some people think of as dumb questions because right. a lot of people are coming to sewing as adults or young people and they didn't have the benefit of a class or a mother or a grandmother to teach them how to sew. So they have a lot of questions. And when they make that first thing and they have so much enthusiasm and they look up and look around and see what other people are making and how beautiful they are and they want to get there. So they ask those questions. And, and part of it is, is because at that point they also don't know what to Google to get the answer to the question. That's right. So I don't have a problem with that. And I think we should encourage as many people who ask those quote unquote dumb questions because mm-hmm. they want to learn more. We mm-hmm. should encourage them mm-hmm. as much as we can mm-hmm. because no one started sewing fully formed. We all Absolutely. started at the beginning. Mm-hmm. We all had to learn how to do it. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So did that answer that question? It did. It did. I realized too, that I answered questions. I ask questions in clusters because I'm so excited. And so like, I'll, I'll ask like five questions at a time and I know that's annoying. So thanks okay. for being so patient. No problem. And the second part of that question was, I think the second part of that question was, do you believe that there are essential sewing skills and yes. are they continuing? Are these being promoted or are they being lost in today's environment? And I just want to be clear. I never said anything was a, a dumb question or a stupid question. No, I agree didn't. with you. I agree with you. I, I agree. I don't think that there is. I think that people don't know unless they ask. And like, I wouldn't have known that it was called a Taylor's ham until unless someone, my mother-in-law actually gave it to me when I first started sewing. And that's the same one I've had, even since before I was married, she gave that to me. So I've had it forever. And then I see them around and I collect them and I get more because, you know, I like notions. How many do you have? Well, (laughs) Carolyn, this isn't really like that. That's not the kind of program we're on right now. Like no one cares about what my, how many hams I have. I mean, you could, that's not like, you know, you can't really flip it on me to say how many hams I may or may not just, have. It was just an intriguing thought that maybe there are like 10 of them lined up perfectly there may in your or may, sewing room. There may or may not be some of different sizes and different variations and, you know, may or may not, you know. Well, well you know, there are different pressing hams. There's yes. a bigger, fatter one. There's a skinnier, smaller one. one There's yeah. a a long, the long skinny one. one. Mm-hmm. I do you know, know there's one for a pants leg. I mean, I think people think that there's like one kind and you're supposed to use it for everything. And no, there's, you can end up with about five or six of them, but I just saw 10 fat little hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do like ham in all forms. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I like ham as in the animal pig bacon. And I like ham as in the really cool sewing notions. And I do have some pretty, really interestingly shaped ones that are just like, that that people like when they stop sewing um, or they've moved on or whatever, they give them to me and they are freaking amazing. Really, yes. really. Yes. Um, and so in terms of essential skills, do you think that, I know there's no, there's no one right way no, to no, no, sew. No, 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 I, I don't have think. one. Oh, you do? Tell me. I have one and it's like my pet peeve and... I'd like to, I'm going to throw out someone's name that I don't know if a lot of people know, but Anne of Gorgeous Fabrics has written some amazing columns about pressing. Oh my God, can we just press the seams, press them flat, press them open, take the time to press your seams, make sure you learn the proper setting on your, on your iron to get the best seam, get Buy a seam roll so that you can put that seam on t- that finished seam on top of it so you can press it. Get some pressing cloths. Pressing mm-hmm. cloths are important. You should have several kinds. If you can't afford a needle board to press velvet, then use a towel, but mm-hmm. press everything. That's- I love it. That's your, I am so excited. You know why I'm so excited? Because one of the very first episodes of this podcast was all about pressing. It was about pressing versus ironing and like, you know, iron, this is what you use. This is what, this is what is ironing, but pressing is absolutely essential. And it was about, I had, I talked about this press cloth. I had this one poor little raggedy press cloth that I've had since my oldest, who's now 21 was a baby. 
and it has it shredded on the sides. I know it's got a hole in it. I think he might have written on it at some point. I mean, like, I love that thing. You know you can replace that, right? No, I can't. (laughs) I mean, you could, no, no, you could take that specific press font pressing cloth and put it in a frame and hang it up in your sewing room so that it becomes a treasured heirloom and you can buy another Another one. one. (laughs) I could put it next to all the hams. I'm yes, liking you how could. you think. I'm liking how you I think. I need a I need a picture of these hams. I, I am I am not going to indict myself. I'm not going to say any more words about the hams that I may or may not have on the grounds that it might incriminate me. Um so we talked about the the importance of pressing and the importance of like that as an essential skill because it really does make a difference with how your garments look. It absolutely does. And a press cloth will save you a lot of grief. And you should have a couple. Yes. You shouldn't have just one type. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have a couple. I have uh, muslin yes. ones. I have silk organza ones. Mm-hmm. I have an old Dritz one that I probably don't use. And I can honestly say I probably use my silk organza ones the most because I can see through them. Yes. And yet press and it works. And because they're silk, they take a lot of heat. That's they right. They take a lot of steam without bending out of shape. Yes. It's one of the best inventions ever. I mean, and I don't even, I didn't even buy these. I just sliced them off the end of the bolt of silk organza I had. I even have them in lengths and sizes. Like I have long skinny ones for pants and shorter, shorter square ones. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. That's a great idea. I I do have some transparent ones, but I think I might have bought them as transparent. Maybe they are silk organza, but they're not nearly as nice and as long and buried as the ones you're describing. Buy a yard of silk organza and cut it up in different shapes. And just be done with it. And be done with it. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Silk organza, not polyester. No, no, no. Because, yeah, we do not want us to melt on my right <laughs> on my garment. Right. So silk organza, that's lovely. You're listening to the Stitch Please podcast, and I'm talking today with Carolyn Norman, Diary of a Sewing Fanatic, about some sewing essentials, changes in the industry, and blogging and influencing and more. Stay tuned for more from Carolyn. Hello, Stitchers. We have a limited edition opportunity for you to support the Stitch Please podcast and the Black Women's Stitch project as a whole and get some more fabric in your collection. These are mystery fabric boxes of fabrics that have been divided into woven and knit. There's boxes that that are stuffed with black and white fabrics. There's boxes of chevron fabrics. There's boxes of fabrics called, I think, adventure or nature or something like that. Um, And these are completely full of fabrics. These are medium flat rate USPS boxes that can be sent directly to you for $30. And that shipping is included. So if you're interested in building your stash or um, taking a chance on some really cool fabrics, let me know. You can DM me on Instagram at Black Women Stitch, or you can send me an email at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com, and we will send you a mystery box of very cool fabrics, $30 shipping and insurance included. And that'll help you get your stitch together too. Thanks. You're listening to the Stitch Please podcast. My guest today is Carolyn Norman of Diary of a Sewing Fanatic. And we're going to talk now about PDF patterns and diversity in the sewing industry. Stay tuned. 
Let's shift to talking a bit about, I wanted to talk about PDF patterns, your thoughts on those. I know they are popular. Um, and I'm very, unless you don't want to, we don't have to. No, no, and, we can talk about PDF patterns. I just feel like I'm the old woman in the shoe railing against the people walking by. Don't buy those. <laughs> and I wanted to talk about um, diversity in the sewing community in terms of uh, race and size inclusivity, you know, and some of your thoughts on that, because I definitely admire your um, leadership and interventions and using your platforms for using your platform for to kind of speak out about that. So I think that that's really I that I, you know, especially a black women stitch. I really we really are about that. We are about um not diversity because I hate that word. It's a word that I think means everything and nothing. Um, at least the way that it's come to be completely yes. watered down. But there's um, a group of people who really liked that word. It might not be us, but there is a group that really likes that word diversity. It makes them feel good to say it. I suppose. I suppose. But those are not the people that I choose to center in anything <laughs> important in my life and certainly not on this podcast. Um, so let's talk about PDF PDF patterns and why you hate them. So first, let me tell you why I started out as a hater. So that way you'll know that you're on friendly terrain. So I did not like PDF patterns because I used to buy all my patterns. Well, I still kind of do from the store you love to hate. Also Joanne's, um, that the, I, the craft store. Yeah. The craft. I used to, I used to go there and I, well, I still do. I'm not, I'm not going to let front. I was just there two days ago and I'm sure I might go tomorrow. <laughs> um, I'm actually pretty sure I am definitely going to Joanne's tomorrow after work. So like I visiting go, the crack house. It, well, yes, yes. Crack is apparently, um, really addictive. And so is Joanne's. I admit that. I admit that. That's the first step to recovery. Um, <laughs> so I would buy my patterns for $1.50 or a dollar or $2 or $5, never more than that. And they, were, they, they, never, they never got up to be that high. Can I tell you a quick story before you go any further? Yes. You guys are spoiled. Yes. Spoiled because up until the last decade, maybe, Mm-hmm. Nobody ran ninety nine, two ninety nine, three ninety nine pattern sales. Hmm. Literally, I remember being thrilled to get a flyer. They were that they were two for five, and they happened like once every three or four months. And okay. I would buy. My kids can tell you horror stories about having oh. to wait to get into the store and having to sit at the at the pattern books while I went off with this list of twenty patterns oh, to find word. because I waited for the two for fives. Wow. And I, do, spoiled. I think we are spoiled. I, I think, and I definitely admit that. And I feel like they are trying to shake us off that spoiled pattern right now, or so to speak, they're trying to, they're sh- trying to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that's why I'm glad you explained about why patterns cost more now because fewer people are buying them. So that, that is, that absolutely makes sense. Um, and so it seemed to me that to buy a PDF pattern for $12, $16, and then I have to, well, I taped maybe two patterns, but I say that taping PDF patterns um, decreases my will to live. <laughs> so I cannot, the way my nerves are set up is I cannot tape a pattern. I absolutely cannot. And I have a friend. She's a, um, she does fabric. Her name's Quinora Renee. She's got Fine of Hearts by Quinora. She has three girls. 
And she has told her girls that this is a game. And those girls, Carolyn, she has got them trained to tape patterns for fun. They smart like, woman. Isn't she smart? Like, she'll give them a pack of paper and they're like, oh, can we have some tape? And they just go to town. And I was like, girl, well done, mama. Uh, okay. But I have two boys and they are going for that. They are not yep. interested in that in any way. And, you know, consider how much actually it's funny. I did get my own mother. She came here. She wanted me to make her this dress. It was size That's and elder abuse. It is not. She, look here, <laughs> look, look here. As we say, look at here. She wanted it. And I said, I will help you, but you, I will help. I will make it for you. Elder abuse. But you've got to tape the pattern and you got to cut it out. Well, she did the taping and she I'm hated need it. to report you. That's she elder hated. abuse. And then, and then Carolyn, I gave her my scissors to cut out the pattern because she sewed a lot. She and her mother were excellent seamstresses, but my scissors are all spring loaded because I have issues with my hands and she couldn't cut with my spring loaded scissors. And I don't have any standard shears because they're too heavy. And so she was like, I can't use your scissors. I really hate taping up this pattern. So I just, I made it for her and it worked out fine, but it was pretty funny. She was not happy with me and all that dog on tape. So that was I'm why I was like, her. why would someone do that? Why would someone go through that? So then they say, well, people who live far away, people who don't have access to fabric stores, people who, you know, so what are, what are your think? What are your, what are your thoughts on those on PDF patterns? I don't like them and I don't like them for a couple of reasons. One, I feel that you've paid someone twelve, fourteen, eighteen, twenty dollars for a pattern. You get a computer file, then you have to use your paper, your ink, and your time to print them out. And let's say we just use twenty five dollars as a base. You've spent twenty five dollars, say it takes you an hour, maybe two because we all get to the point in the middle of taping that we go, oh, my God, deliver me. <laughs> so two hours. So right now your time is at $50. Mm. Um, the ink, a ream of paper, a ream of paper is not cheap. Mm -hmm. I mean, paper is, let's say, $7, $8. Right. Okay. So all of this is what you've already invested You invest on top of the cost of that pattern you paid for. Then, if you're like me, who is not a standard size, I now have to trace the damn thing out, make <laughs> alterations to it. And so if my sewing time is precious, I've used two, three days in just trying to get a pattern. Right. That's my first problem. So then people go, but you don't have to tape it. You can send it to PDF plotting or one of the, the plotting people people. Mm -hmm. So that's another eight or $11. Mm -hmm. So you dropped 14, 12, 14, 20, whatever. And then you drop another eight to 10, $11 for a pattern. And so your cost now is up around the cost of a Vogue pattern, not on sale. Right. Right. Okay. So that's, that's my first challenge with it. Now I understand people who say that they live in remote areas and that the only way they're going to get a pattern is the PDF version. And so PDF patterns work for them and I'm not knocking them because I'm sure if I lived in the Antarctica and wanted to sew and the person that I moved there with would only let me cart 10 
of the 150 boxes I have, mm-hmm. I might be more inclined to try PDF patterns because I'm sure there's not a craft store or I know you hate Hobby Lobby. We're not even <laughs> going to talk about it. We're just going to agree to disagree. Yes, indeed. Um, a Hobby Lobby around, a Walmart, again, so I know people hate that place too. Mm-hmm. Or even if I wanted to order those patterns from Club BMV, yes, it'd probably take me to the next season to get them. So I understand <laughs> why people in remote areas use PDF patterns. But for us, where it's really convenient, I don't understand mm. it. I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. word I use most of the time is scam, which I'm sure does not make me um, appealing <laughs> to any of the indie designers who do such hard work in bringing out those lovely patterns that everyone loves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, it's just my personal thing. Mm-hmm. I don't like PDF patterns. I get it. And I'm glad that we could share that so that other people can know what you think and the people can develop their own opinions. Why? Right, it's on my blog. All you have to do is read the blog. I've ranted <laughs> there enough times about it. <laughs> Let me ask you about size inclusivity or inclusivity and diversity in the sewing community more generally. One it's of the getting better. It's getting better. One of the reasons that some people do like PDF patterns is that the independent designers, they argue, and I do think this is true, are more size inclusive than the big four. I believe that there are some independent pattern designers out there. In the last 12 months. Who are. In the last 12 months. So you think this is a very, very recent development? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Tell me more. Come on. There was a huge hullabaloo just a year ago. The socialist just posted about it Mm. a year ago where it was, there was, an Instagram post written and all of these indie designers came on who we will not name names because people Mm -hmm. are really trying to get better. And so yay for trying to get better, Mm -hmm. but they were giving all the reasons why they did not have to size up. (gasps) Whoa. So no, it's in the last year, please come on. Yep. 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 Please. And 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 I've been fighting with the big four for at least from the beginning of my blog, if you go back and read stuff at the very beginning of my blog, I used to regularly rail against the fact that they would bring out a pencil skirt, a pencil skirt, but they mm-hmm. couldn't grade it up to a 22 or a 24. And I don't care when anyone says the big four still has a thin problem. Yes. They still have a thin problem. Look mm-hmm. at the examples of things that they show on their social media. Look at the examples of things that they think are well-fitted or are wonderful um, makes. Yes. Yes. If you, yes, they include a fat girl every now and then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. They make sure to include people of color, all people of color. But that's mm-hmm. easy to do because all of us is out here sewing and we're on social media. Like right. that ain't hard. That's right. And then I think they're lacking in the fact that they make children's patterns, but you never see children on their Instagram feeds or their social oh, media feed. I think they're lacking in the fact that there's a whole set of men who are sewing now. That's true. That's and true. you rarely see decent men's patterns. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. 
why is their market share sh- shrinking? Because they're not serving the market. Yeah. Ask me the last time I bought a Butterick a Calls or Vogue. It's been a year. Wow. Why? I have, I've been such a faithful customer since I was 11 years old. Mm. But if I'm not running out to buy the latest pattern, to quickly whip it up, and then find me a wonderful spot to stand and pose and, <laughs> and take a picture, then right. you don't want to, you don't want to acknowledge me. Mm. And you don't. You asked me when when we weren't talking, and this mm-hmm. is where I'm going off the rails, and people are going to go, oh, my God, let me unfollow this crazy <laughs> lady. Or you'll get new followers. This is my challenge with sewing and social media today. Everyone gets to do it the way they want. I'm not knocking anyone's game. If you are into, you know, sewing and posing and and, you know, doing the best pictures you can. Hey, go for it. Yay. Rah, rah for you. But I miss sewing where I got to see details Mm -hmm. and I miss sewing where I got to see your process. And I miss sewing with you explained why you picked that piece of fabric, what drew you to it and how you manipulated it and why you even thought that that would work for this garment. I miss that. And when we first started out in social media and sewing, that's what it was all about. Yes. It wasn't about pretty pictures. Right. It wasn't about how many garments you could make, how fast you could make them, how fast you could get them up on your blog, how many pictures you could take, blah, 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 blah. It wasn't that. It was about the process and it was about the love we had for the craft. Yes. And I don't always see that now. Mm-hmm. And I follow a lot of people. Yes. Yes. That's, that's, I I really love that. Thank you for that. Because it seems like now it's much more, at least what I hear you saying is the preoccupation is no longer with the process. It's with just the outcome that, and if that's the case, then it's, it's just a fashion picture like any other fashion picture, as opposed to I utterly transformed yards and yards of fabric into this piece and let me show you how I did it. Or this is why I did it inverted pleat, or this is why, um, or look, I decided to do a flat fell seam instead of a French seam for this reason. And like even, those kind of things. Even all of that seaming stuff. Um, okay. You know, I flat felled all those seams in my shirt. Why? Why'd you waste that time? Oh, why? Who does it? What does it prove? What did Whoa. you do it for? Once you know the technique and you can do it, mm. unless you're wearing a man's shirt, I don't understand why <laughs> women are flat felling all the seams in the shirt. But again, crazy lady talking over here. So <laughs> please feel free to disregard me. This is just my opinion. Mm. My thing is the love of why did you pick that fabric? Why did you yeah. use it for that garment? Yeah. Why did you, why did 10 other people see that fabric online or a hundred other people see that fabric online and didn't see what you saw? Mm. And can you explain why you saw that? And then yeah. why did you decide to do these kinds of things to it? Can I tell you someone online who really excites me now, who mm-hmm. doesn't have a lot of followers and I wish more people would follow her. Let's tell us about it so we can put her on. Um, Lynn Wardrobe Sews. Okay. I know she takes fancy pictures, but she's in California, so I give her that. 
But <laughs> but her sewing is immaculate. And lately she's been sewing a lot and she sews a hell of a lot better than I do. Okay. I'm the first to say when someone sews better than I do. I love to sew, but I'm not precise. I am not precise. Mm, I find that hard to believe. I am not precise. (laughs) (laughs) If I was precise, the angel shirt would have been right the first time. Mm. 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 I would have had to go back and fix it. (laughs) Well, since we are on the angel shirt, I love that because I love when I'm doing like my fussy cutting and all that. I love that kind of symmetry and replication that we can see in patterns. So tell me about what happened the first time with the angel shirt. Because when I looked at it the first time, I was like, "Uh uh-oh. And then I looked yeah. at it again and you had fixed it. And I was like, how is this part? How does she do that? So tell that us about the shirt was a hot mess when I, when I sewed it together. And I was so pissed because that was one of those times where I hadn't relied on a little bit of luck. I'd been precise. Mm. That's why I don't sew precise. I've been precise. I laid the pieces. I checked to make sure I'd marked to make sure the markings were right. And still somewhere in there is shifted. And so my two pieces were different. Wow. And so um, the choice was to trash it, to wear it as is, or to fix it. And I was in a good mood that night after being (laughs) so pissed. (laughs) And I decided I could fix the shirt. And I decided that I was going to photograph each step of fixing the shirt and write a blog post about it so people could see that just because it starts out as a mess doesn't mean it has to end up as a mess. Yes. And so I fixed the shirt. And then I linked to the blog post, and you could see step by step how I fixed it. And I tried to make the wording simple enough so that people could follow along. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I like that part of, the, the, of sewing. I don't need to make... 50 million things anymore. To me, it's the challenge of how can I take that piece of fabric and make it into something wearable? To me, that's magic. Yes. To me, that's a superpower. That's what I like about sewing. Yes. And I just would like to see more of that from other people. Yeah. So tell me what's next for you. You were saying earlier that you aren't like promoting any products or you're not like, you know, partnering with any type of your. So what's next for you when you think about um, sewing for 2020? What does Carolyn's 2020 sewing look like? Do you have any plans? I just want to sew. I have no plans, though some of my friends wouldn't say that's true because they'll say, what are you sewing next? And I'll round down a list of things. But seriously, <laughs> seriously it's just to sew. I just want to sew. Then another reason why I haven't partnered with anyone is that I want to be able to say whatever I want to say about the election that's coming up. Same. That's why I don't have any sponsors, Carolyn, because I want to say whatever I want to say about everything. I- <laughs> About for, everything for this, yeah. No, I don't need you. No, I just no. And no. I don't need I don't need free fabric, and I don't need buttons, and I don't need trim, and I don't need patterns. And mm-hmm. the, the people who really adore me, shout out to Jenny Cashmeret. Oh, um, she um she understands that sometimes I need to say something, but that's okay. But no, I have nothing 
coming down the pike. 2020 is just something just sewing. Well, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to have this great conversation. Um, and I know you are incredibly busy and I really appreciate your generosity um, of spirit to take and the generosity of your own schedule to take the time to have this conversation with me today. And so tell us where people can find you on the socials. I'll include all those links in the show notes. I only have two things, Instagram mm-hmm. and my blog, because I need to sew and I can't be all in the socials if I'm sewing. There is more truth to that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for this wonderful conversation and uh, we'll be in touch. Okay, great. It was great talking to you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Stitch Please podcast, the official podcast of Black Women's Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. There are a variety of ways that you can support the program, and you're doing it right now. By listening to the, pro- by listening to the podcast, it does help us grow. Another way to do that is to rate the podcast, review it, subscribe to it. All of these things are ways that you can support the podcast without having to spend any money at all. If you would like to spend some money to support us, there are ways to do that as well. You can make direct donations to our Patreon site for monthly contributions, as well as one-time contributions to PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo. And finally, we have another cute, very adorable way for you to support the Black Women's Stitch Project. It's a pin, a P-I-N enamel lapel pin that's very cute. It's about two inches wide and one and a half inch tall, and it's of the Black Women's Stitch logo. And that is $15 with free shipping to the U.S. And so if you drop $15 in the PayPal, Venmo, or Cash App accounts, and then send me your email, not email, if you send me your mailing address to my email, either at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com, or you send me a direct message on the Black Women's Stitch Instagram page, we will put the pin in the mail to you. Um, Again, free shipping, $15 for the pin, and all of this goes to support the Black Women's Stitch Project. Thank you again for joining us this week. Come back next week, and we will help you get your stitch together.